Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you're here to join us in the study of God's Word. Good morning, everyone. Today we'll be continuing our sermon series in the book of Leviticus. And during the previous two weeks of study in this book, we've looked at the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering. This morning we'll be directing our attention to chapter four, which speaks on the sin offering. And the topic this morning is not one that I would have sat down and planned out on a schedule to teach on. Simply put, we're here this morning because chapter four comes after chapter three. And this is one of the many benefits that both the preacher and the congregation can experience from expository preaching. For me, I don't need to plan out the material or choose which things to highlight or gloss over. I just need to teach what's in front of me. For you, you aren't forced to hear again week after week whatever things get any particular speaker excited, angry, or anywhere in between. Rather, through expository preaching, you're exposed to the whole counsel of God, hearing and understanding what things he highlights and deems as important. And this morning, we'll be looking at the topic of sin. We'll see the specific system which God put in place in the Old Covenant to restore his people and purify his sanctuary from sin which had corrupted them both. Then we'll be looking at the principles in this chapter that hold just as true for you and I today as they did for the Israelites way back then. And if you aren't there already, turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter four and follow along as I read. Leviticus chapter four. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel saying, if a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and commits any of them, if the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He shall bring the bull to the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord and he shall lay his hand on the head of the bull and slay the bull before the Lord. Then the anointed priest is to take some of the blood of the bull and bring it to the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. The priest shall also put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense, which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. And all the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall remove from it all the fat of the bull of the sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat which is on the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys, just as it is removed from the ox of the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest is to offer them up and smoke on the altar of burnt offering. But the hide of the bull and all its flesh with its head and its legs and its entrails and its refuse, that is, all the rest of the bull, he is to bring out to a clean place outside the camp where the ashes are poured out, and burn it on wood with fire, where the ashes are poured out, it shall be burned. Now, if the whole congregation of Israel commits error, and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly, and they commit any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, and they become guilty, 
When the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a bull of the herd for a sin offering and bring it before the tent of meeting. Then the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be slain before the Lord. Then the anointed priest is to bring some of the blood of the bull to the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. He shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting, and all the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall remove all its fat from it and offer it up in smoke on the altar. He shall also do with the bull, just as he had did with the bull of the sin offering. Thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them, and they will be forgiven. Then he is to bring out the bull to a place outside the camp and burn it as he burned the first bull. It is the sin offering for the assembly. When a leader sins and unintentionally does any of the things which the Lord his God commanded not to be done, and he becomes guilty, if his sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a male without defect. He shall lay his hand on the head of the male goat and slay it in the place where they slay the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Then the priest is to take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and the rest of its blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering. All its fat he shall offer up and smoke on the altar, as in the case of the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin, and he will be forgiven. Now if any of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, and becomes guilty, if his sin which he has committed is made known to him, then he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without defect for his sin which he has committed. He shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slay the sin offering at the place of burnt offering. The priest shall take some of its blood with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and all the rest of its blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar. Then he shall remove all its fat, just as the fat was removed from the sacrifice of peace offering, and the priest shall offer it up on smoke on the altar for a soothing aroma to the Lord. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him, and he will be forgiven." But if he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring it a female without defect. He shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slay it for a sin offering in the place where they slay the burnt offering. The priest is to take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and all the rest of its blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar. Then he shall remove all its fat, just as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering, and the priest shall offer them up and smoke on the altar, on the offerings by fire to the Lord. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin, which he has committed, and he will be forgiven. So reads the word of the living God. And the structure of this chapter is quite easy to follow and has a very similar form as chapters one, two, and three. Chapters one and three were organized around the different types of animals that could be presented as an offering. Animals from the herd, animals from the flock, or for the burnt offerings, an offering of birds. Likewise, chapter two is organized around the different types of grain offerings. An offering of uncooked grains, grains baked in an oven, made on a griddle, or made in a pan. And as we move into chapter four, we see this same type of structure, but with one pretty large difference. 
Its form is not arranged around the particulars of each type of offering, but instead on the position or prominence that an individual or a group held within the construct of the Israelite nation. We see that verses 3 through 12 of our text are structured around the beginning of verse 3, if the anointed priest sins. Verses 13 through 21 are structured around the beginning of verse 13, if the whole congregation of Israel commits error. Verses 22 through 26, around a leader sinning, and verses 27 through 35, around the sin of a common person. We also take note of the fact that unlike the previous offerings, the sin offering does not have a voluntary nature to it. Throughout this chapter, we'll hear the common formula, if so-and-so sins, then they are to bring an offering. It's not a suggestion, it is a command. We also need to define this specific type of offering if we are to understand its function. The sin offering, Hebrew kata'ah, finds its root in the word kata, which is most commonly translated as sin. Of the almost 250 times it's used in the Old Testament, it's translated as sin or something relating to sin nearly 200 times. But this word can also mean to cleanse or to purify. This, of course, has led commentators and theologians to land on different places in their agreeance and basic understanding of this sacrifice's function. The majority have landed in either one of two camps. They label this sacrifice as the sin offering and see its primary purpose as atonement and forgiveness of sins. The life, or more specifically, the blood of the animal sacrificed which represents its life, has paid the ransom for the sin that was committed by the person or persons, and because of this, they can be reconciled to God and forgiven. The other camp labels this offering as the purification offering. They see its primary function not relating to the worshiper who has sinned, but rather to the tabernacle and its instruments that have been defiled because of sin. And both camps can make a clear argument from the text itself, but at the end of the day, the etymology of this Hebrew word weighs too heavily into their decision, and it generally ends up dividing them into two separate camps. And rather than doing a deep dive into the study of this Hebrew word, let's instead just look at the text and see what it has to say about the sacrifice. And I trust that as we do this, it will become evident to us all that this offering does not have to be confined to one side or the other, but can serve both purposes. It's a means to provide atonement for the sinner and bring about forgiveness. And it is a means to purify the tabernacle from the sin that has polluted it. For as we know from scripture and from our own lives, sin's negative consequences don't just affect the sinner. They affect everything and everyone around them. And the first thing that we see in our text is that the Lord is once again speaking to Moses. He tells Moses who to direct these instructions to. Take a look again at verse two. Speak to the sons of Israel saying, 
If a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and commits any of them. And we see that these instructions are directed at the sons of Israel and they are in regards to sins committed unintentionally. And now that description, an unintentional sin, seems a little vague and defining it more will definitely be helpful. The same word is used in Numbers 35:11, which says, then you shall select for yourselves cities to be your cities of refuge, that the manslayer who has killed any person unintentionally may flee there. And these cities were set up to protect anyone who killed someone unintentionally, unwittingly, accidentally, or without intent. And furthermore, in Numbers chapter 15, verses 29 through 31, the contrast between these unintentional sins and defiant sin helps us to better understand what the Lord is after. Numbers 15, 29 through 31. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel, and for the alien who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. And the laws that are spelt out in Leviticus 4 are in regards to the first category of sin that we just read about, unintentional sins. They do not apply to high-handed or defiant sins. As we read on in our text in Leviticus chapter 4, we also notice a few similarities that the sin offering shares with the burnt and peace offerings. The animals to be used are either a bull without defect, a male or female goat without defect, or a female lamb without defect. We see more similarities in verses 4, 14 through 15, 24, 29, and 33. But we'll just be looking at verse 4 because this provides the standard for the other verses that follow after. Verse 4. He shall bring the bull to the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the bull and slay the bull before the Lord. We see here that the offerer or offerers are to bring the animal to the doorway of the tent of meeting, They're to lay their hands on the head of the animal and they're to slay it themselves. Same exact process that we've seen for the other animal sacrifices. But as we turn to verse five, we'll begin to see some drastic differences, particularly in the usage of the sacrificed animal's blood. The blood from both of the previous animal sacrifices was only sprinkled on the altar of burnt offering. As we'll see, this is not the case with the blood from the sin offering. We see this in verses five through seven. Then the anointed priest is to take some of the blood of the bull and bring it to the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. The priest shall also put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense, which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting, And all the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. We see here that if the sinning party 
was the anointed priest. If we look further ahead as well, same applies for the whole congregation of Israel. Then the priest was to take the blood of the animal and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil in the holy place. The priest was also to put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of incense, which was also within the holy place. And the rest of the blood was to be poured out at the base of the altar of burnt offering. See this in verses five through seven and 16 through 18. If the sitting, sinning party was a tribal leader in Israel or a common person, then the priest was to take the blood of the animal and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out the rest at the base of the altar of burnt offering. Verses 25, 30, and 34. And the different usages for the blood of the sin offering compared to the other animal offerings may seem small on paper, but I assure you they are not. Sin had polluted the tabernacle and it needed to be purified. And neither a pressure washer nor an endless amount of bleach would be able to remove the filth and stains that sin had brought in. Only the blood of an appropriate sacrifice would be able to accomplish this. As biblical professor G.W. Demarest puts it, the reality is that as the priests, the entire community, tribal leaders and individuals come and go in and out of the sanctuary, they will bring pollution into the sanctuary, not by intent or design, but simply because they are sinful people. Because of this, something must be done to cleanse the sanctuary from this uncleanness. Thus, the sin offerings. And this is one of the functions of the sin offering. It purifies the tabernacle. But as we'll see from the text itself, to only pitch your tent in the camp of tabernacle purification is to stop too soon. As we read on in Leviticus 4, we'll see another result of the sin offering that is available to the whole congregation, the leader in Israel, and the common person who commits one of these unintentional sins and then brings their offering to the Lord. After the sinning party brings a designated animal, animal to the tabernacle and kills it themselves, the priest then applies the blood of the animal to the appropriate places. The animal is cut up and the parts specified by God are burnt on the altar. And then we see the result for the offer. Verses 20, 26, 31, and 35 spell out the same result every time with almost identical wording. So the priests shall make atonement for them and they will be forgiven. And sin pollutes everything it touches. The Lord's sanctuary was contaminated by the sins of the people and needed to be purified. But the people also needed to be purified and forgiven of their sins. The sin offering is not confined to only accomplishing one or the other. It accomplishes both. In the words of theologian Derek Tidball, the sin offering is designed to restore the sinner, remove the guilt, and deal with all the consequences of sin, not just its pollution of the sanctuary. And this is the function of the sin offering. And hopefully you've been able to see and understand this as we've walked through this step by step. 
And now that we've walked through these things, let's consider what principles in this text still apply to each and every one of us today. First, we can notice that in all cases, except that of the anointed priest's sin, that before sin and its consequences can be dealt with, sin must first be recognized. Take a look again at Leviticus 4, 13 through 14. Now, if the whole congregation of Israel commits error and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly and they commit any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and they become guilty, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a bull of the herd for a sin offering and bring it before the tent of meeting. And if you read back through this text by yourself at a later date, you'll also notice that verses 22 and 23, verses 27 through 28, spell out this same exact thing. When the sin of the guilty party becomes known, then they must do something about it. And make no mistakes here, friends. By no means is this only relevant for the Israelites as they worship the Lord in the tabernacle. It's just as relevant and just as true for us as we worship the Lord in his church. Sin must be recognized before it is dealt with It must be brought into the light so that it can be seen before anything else can happen. And while Leviticus 4 does not lay out in detail how the sins of these parties became known to them, we have other places in scripture that reveal to us how God causes his people to recognize their sin. On the first week of each month at Faith Family Night, we've been walking through the life of David. And just in his life alone, we can see the different ways that God uses to help his people see their own sin. In 1 Samuel 24, 5, we remember that after David cuts off the corner of King Saul's robe, that he is instantly aware of his sin because he was bothered by his conscience. No one had to say a word to David because his conscience made him aware that he had sinned. We can also recall the way in which God brought David's sin with Bathsheba into the light. 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 9, and verse 13 read, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. Thus says the God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah and if that had been too little, I would have added many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? And in verse 13, we see David's response. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. We see here that God uses both his own words 
and man's words to help convict David of his sin. And these are the same means which God still uses today to help us recognize our own sin. His Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and our conscience is made aware that we have sinned. He uses the words of others to help us take notice of this of sin that has crept into our lives and most notably, he uses his word. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And God uses different ways to help us recognize our sin. And this is what we just quickly observed in the life of David. But sadly, we know that both before and after David recognized his own sin, there were still many consequences to be had. And we see this same thing in Leviticus 4 as well. The sins listed in this chapter were unintentional. The people didn't even realize that they had sinned and were guilty in the eyes of the Lord. But this did not stop sin from moving forward and causing its destruction. The tabernacle had been polluted because of their unintentional sins before they had even realized that they had sinned. And their recognition of it had zero bearing on whatever sin was already doing in the background. Sin's not stalled out at the starting line waiting for the gunshot of self-recognition to go off. No, as soon as we sin, even if we don't realize we have sinned, we have fired the shot that lets sin take off and start wreaking havoc. We may not be able to see it, but know this, the sin in our lives and the sin in our midst will always bring about catastrophic consequences. It can lurk in the shadows, causing chaos amongst God's people, even if we're completely unaware of its existence. But once it has been brought to the light, it must be dealt with. To do anything other than this is to stand in direct opposition of God's word, and whether you want to admit it or not, its consequences will be felt by all. And on our own, we have no way to deal with sin. We have no way to stop it from spiraling farther and farther out of control. And we're completely incapable of washing it off of ourselves or anything else. But praise be to God that he has provided a way to do so. He has provided a sacrifice, but his people must rely upon that sacrifice. For the Israelites in the Old Covenant, they needed to rely upon the sacrifices that God instructed them to make. Not because there was anything special about these sacrifices in and of themselves, but because this is what God had instructed them to do. And because these sacrifices pointed towards something greater than they could understand at the time. There was no inherent power within the blood of a bull, goat, sheep, or any other animal that could by itself wash the people from their sins. Hebrews 10.4 spells this out as plain as day. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
The only reason these sacrifices could do anything for God's people was because he was the one who instituted them and because he knew what they pointed forward towards. They all pointed forward to Christ, the ultimate sacrifice. We're told so in Hebrews chapter nine, verses 11 through 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And it's only because of the sacrifice of Christ that anyone could be cleansed and forgiven of their sins. While we must look back to his sacrifice, the people in Leviticus needed to look ahead. But as long as we rely upon the sacrifice of Christ, the result is one and the same. Let's take another look at Leviticus chapter four. And while we do this, let's take note of the amazing result that is made available when God's sacrifice is relied upon. We see that after the whole congregation, the tribal leader or the common person had brought their sin offering to the tabernacle. After the animal had been killed, its blood had been applied to the appropriate places, and after the designated parts were burnt up on the altar, we see the result for the offerer. We see the same exact outcome in the latter parts of verses 20, 26, 31, or 35. The priests shall make atonement for them, and they will be forgiven. And as the Israelites gathered to worship the Lord in his tabernacle, as we gather here this morning to worship the Lord in his church, we all must realize that on our own, we're completely incapable of being purified from sin and experiencing forgiveness. We can try to accomplish this by ourselves with all of our might and for all of our lives, but it will get us nowhere. We're already so tainted and so polluted by our own sin that we'll never be able to wash ourselves clean. It'd be the equivalent of you taking your car, parking it in a mud puddle, and trying to use that dirty, soiled, and agitated water to clean your car. It's pointless. You need water that is clean and unpolluted if you are to remove the dirt and grime from your vehicle. Likewise, we need to rely on a sacrifice that is pure and undefiled if the dirt and grime from our sins is ever to be removed from our lives. And that sacrifice is Christ. He is the only one that can wash away our sins, but we must rely upon him. And not just a partial reliance either, we must fully rely upon his sacrifice. And this is the picture that's been on display in each of the animal sacrifices in Leviticus. Before the animal is killed, the offerer places his hands on the head of the animal and leans heavily against it. And Matthew Henry aptly describes the significance of this act. The offerer must put both his hands with all his might between the horns of the beast, signifying thereby a dependence upon the sacrifice as an instituted type of the great sacrifice on which the iniquity of us all was to be laid. Leviticus 4 has shown us that sin must be recognized before it can be dealt with, that a sacrifice must be relied upon, 
And it also reveals that the significance of your role will be taken into account. And as we have already noted, this chapter is structured around the position or prominence that an individual or a group held within the construct of the Israelite nation. First, in our text, we see the anointed priest, which is another title for the high priest. Then the whole congregation, then a tribal leader, and lastly, a common person. And it's pretty easy to notice the hierarchy that is established here. High priest is at the top, common person is at the bottom. And this is not because the high priest has more value in the eyes of God, simply because he is somehow superior to his fellow man. No, this hierarchy has nothing to do with a person's worth as an individual, but everything to do with the weight of influence that God has placed upon them. And this weight of influence is not to be taken lightly by those God has given it to. Jesus himself says as much in a parable in Luke 12, 48. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. God had reserved the privilege of the tabernacle work to Aaron and his sons. And beyond this, he had reserved the privilege of high priest to just one man at any one single time, Aaron being the first high priest. And what a tremendous opportunity this would have been for Aaron. The eyes of the nation would be on him. The influence that he would have would be enormous in all of these people's lives. Yet, this influence could swing one way or the other. He could lead the people closer to God and away from sin, or away from God and closer to sin. And no matter who you are, your sin will have an impact on those around you. And that's true for the youngest person in this room. Your sin will affect your siblings, your parents, and work its way on up the ladder. Yet the sin that is even more pervasive and far-reaching is not the sin that comes from the bottom, but the sin that comes from the top. And Leviticus chapter four reveals this to us in two separate ways. First, we must observe the sacrifices that were required for each sinning party. The anointed priest was to bring a bull without defect, verse three. The whole congregation, a bull from the herd, verse 14. A tribal leader, a male goat without defect, verse 23. And the common person, a female goat or female lamb without defect, verses 28 and 32. And while the value system of these sacrifices may be a little harder for us to see since we no longer live in an agrarian society, this would not have been the case for the Israelites. It would be the equivalent of us being able to distinguish the difference in value between $100, $50, and $20. I could ask a child that question and they'd be able to answer it with ease. A bull has more value than a male goat and a male goat has more value than a female goat or a female lamb. Just like $100 has more value than a 50 and 50 has more value than a 20. The value is of no question. The question is, why do different parties have to provide sacrifices of more or less value? And this is the question, and momentarily we'll circle back around for the answer. And the value of the sacrifice itself reveals to us that the significance of one's role will be taken into account. But our text reveals this same thing to be true 
in another way as well. It does so through the instructions regarding the manipulation of the sacrificed animal's blood. If the anointed priest or the whole congregation sins, then the priest on duty in the tabernacle is to take the blood of the sacrificed animal and go beyond the outer courtyard into the holy place. He's to dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. And additionally, the priest was to take some of the blood and put it on the horns of the altar of incense, which was also within the holy place. Then the remainder of the blood was to be poured out in front of the altar of burnt offering. We see this in verses five through seven and verses 16 through 18. And we compare this to the rituals of the sin offering for a tribal leader or common person. The priest on duty remains in the outer courtyard. He is to place some of the blood on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. Verses 25 and 30. And these are the rituals that are required for different sinning parties. But we must ask, why are they different depending upon who sinned? And why does the tabernacle need to have a deeper purification when the high priest or the whole nation sins? Richard Hess, a professor and scholar of the Old Testament, answers these questions well. He says, the uncleanness has penetrated farther into the sanctuary because of the gravity of a high priest's sin or a sin by the whole population of Israel. The sin had penetrated farther within. It has gone deeper. It's more far-reaching. And as a result, the Lord's sanctuary needs further purification. And to this we object, well, I can understand why that might be so if the whole nation falls into sin, but why is the sin of just one guy on the same level? That seems a little extreme. Commentator Gregory Lint reminds us why this is so. A sin of the whole nation was really a sinful decision of the leadership and accepted by the people. And this is how things work, friends. The sins of those at the top affect everyone beneath them. And as much as we don't like to talk about these things, it doesn't make them any less true. And I can't help to think what was circling around in Aaron's head when he heard these instructions being given from the Lord for the first time. He was about to be consecrated as the first high priest. And just a short time before, he led the whole nation into an egregious sin. Exodus 32.1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people ascended about Aaron and said to him, come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. The whole congregation is on the brink of sinning and Aaron had the opportunity to shut the whole thing down before it even started. He could have pulled the brakes on this right then and there and prevented this sin and its con consequences from ripping through the entire nation. But what's he do instead? He caves to the whims of the people. Verse two, Aaron said to them, tear off the gold rings which are in your ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. He took their gold, formed it into a calf, and then the whole nation bowed down before it. <laughs> and look at what Moses says to him when he comes down from the mountain. Exodus thirty-two twenty-one. 21. 
what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? Haran brought the sin upon the people, but everyone had to pay the consequences. This sounds remarkably close to Leviticus 4.3. If the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people. And Aaron knew far too well what this felt like. He had led the people into sin. And as we know, the consequences for his sin and theirs was tragic. Sadly, people are far too slow to learn the lessons from the past. In a few weeks, we'll see in Leviticus chapter 10 that Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, had apparently not learned from their father's mistakes. They disobey the Lord's command and offer up strange fire to the Lord, and they are instantly struck dead. And once again, our minds run to the defense, this seems a little extreme. And we're so quick to run there because we forget what God's instructions are for those who are to lead his people. For the priests in the Lord's tabernacle, Leviticus 10, 10 through 11, provides their standard. So as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane and between the unclean and the clean. And so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken through Moses. To the elders of the Lord's church, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but providing to be examples to the flock. We've seen from Leviticus 4 that sin must be recognized before it can be dealt with, a sacrifice must be relied upon, and the significance of your role will be taken into account. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. Just thank you once again for a time we have to gather here in your church and to hear your Lord, uh, to hear your word, Lord. Just thank you that it can speak to us. And thank you that despite the fact that we are a sinful people, Lord, that you don't just turn your backs on us and 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 hide your face from us. Um, time and time again, you give us different ways to see our own sin, Lord. Use our consciences, other people's words, your own words, Lord, to help us see our sin. But once we do, Lord, pray that it would be dealt with. We wouldn't let it just sit in the background and cause more chaos in our lives and the lives of those around us but it would be noticed. And we thank you that you provided a sacrifice that can take care of these sins. We thank you for sending your son. We pray that we rely upon his sacrifice. Lord, I also pray that wherever you've put each of us, that we would realize that no matter where we are, we have eyes looking up to us and that we would recognize the influence that you've given and not take that lightly, Lord. That we wouldn't try to do it all under our own power, but we draw closer and closer to you in our own lives, and as an effect, we become a model that other, people's, other people can follow after. We pray that we do all of these things in your power and your spirit, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose, come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue.